Hi, this is Burning Heron. I'm Chief McLean. Hey, I'm Melonbread. Hello, this is Alendil004. This is William Roy, and you're listening to The Green Box. On tonight's episode, we're joined by Night of the Opera contest winner Will Shar to discuss his scenario, A Soft White Dam. Later, Ellen Dill, Melonbread, and Chief McLean will talk about their respective contest entries. But first, the five of us had a little chat about so-called useless character archetypes and what both players and handlers can do to help them contribute to an investigation. Hey, on the green box, I believe the topic of discussion was how can we make underused professions more interesting or more playable or otherwise encourage people to play them. We specifically started this conversation with reference to the anthropologist character because I kept complaining that it wasn't very good, but this can apply to anything because I'm sure at your table you have noticed that people are gravitating towards certain things, and if not, then perhaps this will be interesting to you anyways. Yeah, if not, then congratulations. Yeah, good for you. So I believe that, Chief, you had something that you found interesting about the use of anthropologists or anthropology degrees in the crafting of of the CIA's human terrain master plan. Uh, Yeah, it was the Department of Defense. It was called the Human Terrain System. Basically, they embedded anthropologists within military teams in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, basically, they, they wanted to bring about cultural awareness in order to win hearts and minds, so to speak. Uh, it was more of a psyops thing. And I did not read the article uh, about how effective were they. Um, well, the studies varied. One lieutenant colonel swore that the number of offensive operations, that is like the number of uh, Taliban attacks, in the region that they had human terrain systems went down by up to 60%, but uh, your results may vary, I guess. Yeah, it's difficult to do like an RCT where you say, you know, the Taliban in this area will get the control treatment and the Taliban in that area will get the uh, the actual treatment and then, you know, prevent them from cross-pollinating and so on. Uh, one, one of the complaints about the human terrain system was that it was uh, – mismanaged, that there was no, like, end game for it or anything like that. They didn't really have any, like, command directives or goals. They, they pretty much just did what they wanted to do, and sometimes they were effective and sometimes they weren't. And uh, a lot of times they weren't even really looking for work. You know, if, if someone's there and they're getting paid, you know, what's their incentive unless they're, like, highly motivated? I think it is a case of they didn't, it sounds like they didn't pre-register any sort of hypothesis for this is what will change when we when we do this thing, and then therefore they had no way of judging whether it was successful or not, other than by sort of these ad hoc measurements that were imposed after the fact. Welcome to the government. I was just going to say, this is all sounding very familiar. Well, I read about halfway through the article, and that certainly seems to be the case. It seems like the origin of it was just an anthropologist visiting the Pentagon or talking to a general was just saying, Probably you guys don't have any idea what you're doing over there, uh, and that's screwing things up for you. And the general said, well, why don't you show us how it's done? And it was just this general sense of a cultural misunderstanding, not any specific goals they had in mind for the program, just just to kind of institutionalize the cultural knowledge that soldiers in the field were picking up 
and then was being lost when they returned to civilian life. Yes, I mean, that's a, a neat article, but I mean, how does that help me as a Delta Green player who wants to play a cool character, but doesn't want to be uh, overshadowed by all the guys with guns and badges? Well, I have an idea, and I think Chief has an idea, because Chief, you created a character that was one of these sorts of people, but you encountered some other problems with the way that the system is built for designing these types of characters. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, th- I found the key to it was take the anthropologist. We've we've talked about it before, and I just kind of did it. Uh, take away the foreign languages skills and allocate them elsewhere. Make foreign languages a special training. Then you have, when, when you remove that, I think it's like 100 points or so that you waste um, in character creation on foreign languages. Uh, when you move those around, and then in the bonus skill point packages, uh, allocate some firearms in there. I back that up because the human terrain system guys, they received some rudimentary weapons trainings and they did carry rifles around when they went out on patrols. Throw some human in there, throw some psychotherapy in there, and you got sort of a jack-of-all-trades character because, uh, well, it was more effective than I thought it would be. And uh, maybe, maybe not so much since I had to fundamentally alter the profession, but still... Well, so here's here's some advice then for someone who's running the game. Consider just making languages a special training in general, because I think that's a better way of handling the way languages are inevitably used in RPGs, which is almost never, unless you happen to have the exact right one. Alternatively, if you don't feel like doing that, you can create this custom profession by just slicing a couple bonds off the anthropologist and allocating the points as Chief just suggested. So they get some points in firearms, they get some points in human, they get some points in psychology. There you go. I'm not even sure you necessarily need to do a custom profession for that, because there are some of the special professions at the back of the book for uh, CIA's political action group and the U.S. Army's military information support team that do something similar, where you have uh, athletics and firearms and a couple of more rough-and-tumble, generally useful skills in addition to specialized skills like anthropology or history or SIGINT or something like that. So what gaps does the anthropologist fill um, in terms of like, you know, the somebody's got to be the cleric, someone's got to be the rogue, someone's got to be the fighter. So the, what, what gaps does the anthropologist fill in your game group? Ooh, hard, hard disagree here. Hard disagree. Delta Green is not World of Warcraft. There are not distinct character roles. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take a firm stance there. I am going to go in the other direction and suggest that currently the answer is not all that much because I believe, at least in the published modules that I've read, the most an anthropology or archaeology role has ever done is got you some fluff that doesn't help you resolve the situation and possibly made you lose sanity. Uh, that's half the game, though. I mean, that's, that's half the fun, losing, losing sanity. It's true, but I can also lose sanity as a federal agent and also shoot things and also tell people to get down on the floor and also kill them and not get in trouble for it because I've worked for the FBI. Well, I would present that as a flaw of scenario design on the part of the handler or the writer of the scenario rather than as a problem with the game system itself. That is certainly something that I have tried to do when I write stuff, is increasingly add roles for characters who have these more esoteric skills that are not absolutely essential to the completion of the scenario, but do give a big boost. It seems like, you know, 
if the solution to how to make anthropologists interesting is to just give them firearm skills and give them guns, and we're still not really at the idea of how does an anthropologist be interesting. Uh, I like the idea of you, know, you have your typical FBI agent and your typical uh, you know uh, Green Beret type, and they ha they bring along like you know some mousy librarian type with glasses because they need him to figure out the bad guy's weakness or whatever. That doesn't seem to happen as much. But I think that's that's what the anthropologist to me is kind of meant to do. What, one of the things I was thinking about is that the idea of making the anthropologist uh, actually an intelligence agent or a foreign service officer or part of the military is that you kind of take them away from the archetype of the stuffy librarian, uh, the college professor who doesn't know anything really outside of textbooks and academia. And so you make them more interesting by making them more active rather than just waiting for the right clue to come along where they can be useful sure but i mean intelligence analyst and case officer already exist as other professions so i, I still don't think that's a very good solution the solution there is just don't make an anthropologist i would like to return to the idea of the person who is only brought in to because they have a piece of critical knowledge that you know is a clue because in all of at least the published material that we've seen that has that role has always been filled by an NPC. Consider the module Music from a Darkened Room. Music from a Darkened Room, there are two NPCs that essentially do the bulk of the mystery solving. One of them is completely useless, and the other is absolutely essential. That entire interaction is essentially handled off-screen by an NPC with what we would probably call the anthropology or archaeology skill, because the height of game design is to have a character play Antiques Roadshow while you guys investigate a spooky house. The problem with putting that in the hands of the players, then it becomes this deus ex machina that you can't access without some of the appropriate skill. So I see why, if anthropology is vital to the scenario, they include that safety valve of the NPC, but then why would a player character ever do it? Well, one of the other things I, I kind of just thought about is something that I've never really dabbled into, is an anthropologist may be highly likely to have some sort of ritual or mythos knowledge. Um, so maybe that character a way to maybe fix, you know, air quote, the character is give them some sort of starting, you know, starting sand loss would give them some access to some sort of um, supernatural, uh, you know, ritual or something like that. Because that, the, then the guy with the gun can't do that, but you can, even if it's like finding or something minor, it would be very useful. Oh, it's, it's not a bad idea. Um, I mean, just give them like fascination or uh, an infallible suggestion or something along those lines, but uh, then the the danger that you run into is that you're moving into traditional like D and D classes, and apparently Will doesn't like. Well, he, here's something though: the thing about having an anthropologist or someone who's good at navigating the world of information is that it cuts to a fundamental difference in the setting between the old Call of Cthulhu RPGs and Delta Green. In the old Call of Cthulhu RPGs, an anthropologist or an archaeologist who wanted to go find information about Shebnigrath or whatever could go look that up in a book and find references to it and track that down through academia and find information that was useful to the group. In Delta Green, the central setting conceit is that there is a vast government conspiracy which for a hundred years has been working to eliminate all information about these things from the public eye. Where do you get that? I can go through the rulebook and start citing specific passages, if you like. Please do, because that is not all the interpretation I get of uh, the Delta Green setting. For instance, I've read nothing to indicate that the Necronomicon is not still in the uh, the restricted stacks at Arkham University. 
I have got to the point now where I actually don't know whether them keeping it a secret is canon or fanon, because it's one of those things that keeps popping up on the Fairfield wiki, and I don't remember if they cite it from the official books or if it's something they made up. I, I thought they, they stored it in the Library of Congress. I thought that was what... Uh... No, that's the Federal Papers. The Federal Papers in the Library of Congress. Like in the Future Perfect Part 1. Which, that is another scenario where um, easy way in for an archaeologist or anthropologist... You know how in that scenario, the way to translate the glyphs on the Serpent Man secret portal is to go to the library and hope that you succeed the correct role to read the document? What if instead someone who was an anthropologist or archaeologist had a chance to actually look at the gate and say, hey, that one will shut it off, that one will flood us, that one will irradiate us, etc.? One of the other things I wanted to bring up about the anthropologist is uh, its place uh, within Lovecraft's writing. I think, Melon, you've mentioned that you really love The Mound. The Mound is a good story. It is an example of what I would do if someone told me to write to write based on a prompt that I really didn't like. Oh yeah, that's that's what I remember you talk, talking about, how he just kind of rewrote uh, Zelia Bishop's thing there. But uh, the primary perspective of that story is told by an ethnographer who is supposed to be... Uh, knowledgeable about uh, Native American populations in the area. You know, he talks to, uh, what's the, the Indian chief? I think his name is like Old old Gray or Gray Feather. And uh, he just casually mentions Yig, like it's, you know, just something that he knows about. Yeah, they. It's, it gets to what I was what I was suggesting, is that in this, in the world of the original novels and in the old Call of Thule RPG, these things were not necessarily household names, but they were things that an anthropologist could easily find out about. And that, I believe, is a, is a difference in sort of the central setting conceits. Elendil just posted a paragraph of text in the text chat that indicates sort of the middle position in between the two. Well, it's it's too bad that text chat is not going to be recorded into this audio podcast, Melon. Why don't you uh, why don't you say something about it? I would absolutely love to. There are millions of copies of Unnatural Tomes floating around in PDF, photographed by enthusiasts page by page. The program propagates computer worms to seek out such files and delete them, but nothing can ever be erased from the internet. Little column A, little column B. And then, uh, you know, what's to say someone doesn't just go and print these PDFs off and hit them with a three-hole punch, and now you've got a homemade copy of the Necronomicon, or, uh, you know, maybe you know somebody that knows somebody that's got some sort of text, uh, you know, that's older might be shared around uh, archaeological community or, you know, something along those lines. You know what I like the idea of now? You ever get a PDF like the, I'm going to bully Wizards of the Coast, the 5th edition player's handbook is like this, where the PDF of it, they just used a handwriting scanner to scan it, and so then you, you will copy and paste text and it'll say robe instead of rope, or like L's become ones. I'm imagining someone does a handwriting recognition thing with like some kind of medieval text and gets like one or two letters wrong when they scan it and they put the handwriting thing and then they get they get a plain text version of it that's a sort of like a searchable pdf but the text output of it is is subtly wrong in ways that end up killing them now that's interesting i like that it is interesting but it is a bit difficult to translate into game terms although that is something that an anthropologist character could do or a computer scientist because the other thing we were discussing is how Computer scientists, it's difficult to play a computer scientist as just a straight-up hacker, because that's then you make it into Shadowrun or Eclipse Phase, or you have to map out the networks and figure out what's actually connected to the internet and all that stuff. 
Uh, I was going to kind of circle back for a second um, as I just kind of skimmed through some more of the uh, handler's guide is that they, they list a lot of things that, like, for example, the Necronomicon or other tomes can do. It, you know, it's, apparently it has uh, a ritual to stop, you know, Azathoth and some other, you know, various things. So if they're going to include stuff like that, then things of the Necronomicon must be a little more accessible to the everyday Dollar Green agent in a, you know, in a long-term campaign or else why spend all this time talking about it. It's part of the tension in designing an RPG where the instruction given to the GM in the Handler's Guide, and really in any horror RPG, Eclipse Face has the same problem, which is why it ends up not being a horror RPG, where the section says, this is all a secret, your players will never learn this, you should lie to them about everything, and then that gives an exhaustive body of lore with intricate details that are that go down to the microscopic level about you know the inner workings of the organization where each text is stored or possibly not but who knows what spells all this stuff and as i think both elendil will and maybe also heron and chief have said if it is written down you will inevitably find a way to explain it to the players yeah, lore stuff is no fun if only the uh, the GM ever gets to learn. This also raises, uh, you know, we we play a lot of the Delta Green games we play, or all the Delta Green games we play, are a little more one shotty. You know, different groups of players, different groups of GMs and handlers. Um, you know, a, a pseudo connected living world. Whereas I think the more traditional Delta Green, you know, all your guys sit around the kitchen table and they're tired of playing D and D, so you do a little bit of Delta Green for a little while you would have a longer form campaign. Whereas, you know, we tend to throw a shock at somebody as soon as they open the garage door, this tape might, you know, the a standard air quote, double new scenario might take a long time where you spend two whole sessions finding the Necronomicon so you can use it to defeat Azathoth or whatever. Whereas in a game that takes three and a half hours, four hours, that's just not in the cards. Is is that something we do? Throw a shock at that garage doors? I don't know. Come to Gen Con and find out. Will, you are running a scenario at Gen Con where there's a Shoggoth in a garage. Wow, spoiler alert. i just edit that out. Yeah, I'll fix it in post. Can we talk a little bit about some other uh, non-anthropologist professions and maybe some issues with them? I, I did, just, just very briefly, I did want to go back because uh, I really didn't get to the meat of that one article that I uh, had posted. So there, for the past 100 years or so, uh, coincidentally, that's about how long Delta Green's been around, there had been embedded anthropologists as spies because it's a pretty good cover you know you're off um out doing a archaeology dig so you're out in the middle of nowhere you're embedded within populations uh you have to have credentials and cover so those examples of like the president of harvard university would say yeah this person's a legit archaeologist and they'd be off on a dig while really they're just kind of canvassing the local population for opinions on you know how they feel about the u.s government or you know what would you do if uh you were given the chance to rise up against your current government or things along those lines they were just kind of out there feeling and seeing uh what the local population felt like so the anthropologists have always had a pretty good cover which if you're running a long-form campaign that makes them again that makes them ideal uh npc handlers but it also can give you uh, you know some tools to play around with if you say, all right, well uh, I'm going to be running a campaign that takes place primarily in South America, 
your anthropologist has been embedded there, you can navigate and get around, you know things about the local culture, you know how to not offend someone, or, you know, something along those lines. You might also have some contacts in the area. Well, on that note, uh, there's I haven't linked to it, but there's another article I've read called... Uh, I think it's Congress's Global Treasure Hunters, and it's about the Library of Congress's overseas offices. And basically, it's a group of librarians of Congress and people from local countries who help them, who preserve the culture of countries in war-torn sections of the world that can't really do it themselves. Uh, So, for instance, they're stationed in Egypt, they're stationed in Pakistan... So whenever terrorism or civil war threatens to destroy cultural artifacts or works of literature or things like that, uh, these people make it their jobs to find original copies of them and keep them safe for future generations. To use your example, if you wanted to set a campaign in South America with anthropologists, their handler could easily be someone working for the overseas office in Rio de Janeiro, for instance. Right, and uh, so you mean that there's anthropologists that are paid for by the United States government to go out there and collect rare items and artifacts and tomes? Because, I mean, that just screams Delta Green right there. Yeah, exactly. That was I used that as a backstory for Agent Mosin, even though it never really came up. But the idea is that if the program wants to send people out to other countries to try and find dangerous near mythical books and then oh whoops it turns out we didn't find it or it got destroyed somehow this is really your cover so i'll devil's advocate that a little bit if if you want a, a group of characters to go you know into rio de janeiro and secure a mythical artifact like a bunch of operators are just going to be better than a bunch of anthropologists so why would you bring a bunch of aside from story reasons why would you bring a bunch of anthropologists or if you were the anthropologist anthropologist in the group how, how do you have fun in that scenario well again you know he knows the local customs knows what the local population is like attitudes and cultures uh might be able to come up with a way that doesn't draw attention to uh the mission might find a way of getting what they want without... And again, we've, t- we've talked about non-violent solutions that don't result in burn everything down and shoot everything. Well, I mean, it sounds like an anthropologist might be key and in, instrument in that. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But I mean, so does a CIA case officer or a CIA operator who can also burn things down when stuff goes sideways. And I think by its very nature, a Delta Green op, where you fight a Rio de Janeiro talk to some locals, walk to a dig site, secure a book in a box and fly home is not what's now I would enjoy playing. Uh, something about the tension, you know, uh, if I were a handler for that sort of thing, I'd probably uh, have him talk his way out of an inspection at a checkpoint or, uh, you know, a deal with the local slumlord trying to, you know, I mean, just different things that you could do as a handler to spice up those types of scenarios that might not necessarily call for a shootout and still add tension and drama to the game. One of my answers to that would also be these overseas offices are typically on the grounds of U.S. embassies in these countries. So you could also have an actual librarian of Congress working alongside uh, a U.S. Marine embassy guard and uh, somebody who works for the local CIA station as well. 
and then the anthropologist becomes your face. Hebe is the character who is... Your anthropologist basically becomes a federal agent because he is the one character who can be seen talking to these people and walking around the country. Uh, nobody else is really supposed to be recognized or they have very sp- special posts they're supposed to be. So freedom of movement, perhaps, would be my answer of what the anthropologist brings in that situation. Good answer. Thank you. All right. We, uh, we still anthropologists, so can we move to some other 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 things? So I, I want to talk about uh, two other professions. Which one would you like to talk about? I've played a lot of Delta Green. I've seen a lot of Delta Green played. And there's two professions that I've never seen. Um, one is media specialist, like a TV reporter. And the other one is lawyer or business executive. Now, I've seen a lot of players pretend to be lawyers, and that tends to work out well. But I just don't see... Help me understand the value of playing a business executive who, by the way, has no mechanical advantage in game for, of like money or anything, uh, or a TV reporter or a blogger. It is a case of something that, well, you've pointed it out, I've pointed it out, several people have pointed it out in this call, I think, that the thing that things that provide a definite mechanical advantage will always be preferred over things that provide the suggestion of an advantage. Because if you're running a game and someone says, you know, we can take my private jet, it's possible that a business executive would have a private jet, but there's no mechanic that reflects that. He still has to make the expensive as acquisition like anyone else. Mechanically, there's no benefit. It's something that's more narrative and would have to be like worked out outside of the game system almost. The other thing that I was going to say about lawyers is that lawyer is something that is not necessarily portable. It's it's a similar thing to a to the difference between a state or local police officer and a federal agent. Let's say we go on an adventure in Louisiana, and I am from Mississippi. Even if I am a lawyer in Mississippi, there's not a whole lot I can do to use my law skill legitimately in Louisiana. Why is that? Are, are the law skills divided amongst uh, state jurisdictions? I wasn't aware they were that thinly sliced. Well, in real life, they are because Louisiana uses civil law and the rest of the country uses common law. So the skill would be useful for the knowledge element, but to actually do lawyery stuff, you would be entering into a, a very dangerous place. It's similar. It's Again, it's a question of jurisdiction. Yeah, you got to pass the bar exam in each state that you want to practice in. I'd say it's a question of whether the handler is going to crack down that hard or not on issues like that. Well, and the irony here is that you're almost better off being a non-lawyer and pretending to be a lawyer, because you'd probably get less of a, you'd get less in trouble than if you are a real lawyer and pretended to be a lawyer somewhere else. You'd probably lose your, you'd lose your bar certification in your actual, where you actually can practice law. But if you're just like a random criminal, pretend to be a lawyer, the, uh, the effects could be a lot less. I think that the business executive background, if you had someone who was very permissive and if you built your bonds correctly, could be a very, a very nice thing, because you're will will and I think Chief, you were you're right in the sense that if you don't require you know going strictly by rules as written, no, this is an expensive acquisition or whatever. If you say, hey, you put down one of your bonds as the PI that you basically keep on retainer at your big expensive law firm, and you say to him, go find this clue, or you say to your to your security chief, hey, I need two of your elite harness bulls to accompany me on this operation. That's a great value add from the business executive. The one time I saw a media profession used, it wasn't actually a media specialist, but something one of them could have done, is when, I don't remember who it was, ran the last equation, a character used the video editing skill to 
create video evidence to falsify the the guilt of the suspect who went on the shooting rampage due to the influence of the magic numbers in his head. So you like framed a guy? Yes. That's interesting because uh, you know uh, how many times have you needed to frame somebody else for a crime in, in your Delta Green operation? Uh, it comes up pretty often uh, and uh, I mean just having somebody that's able to do that is pretty useful. So uh, I think that was a pretty good discussion and my questions got pretty much answered. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to play a business executive in a, you know, strict rules is written, you know, hardcore handler type scenario because you don't have any mechanical advantages. But obviously, if you're playing this game strictly to watch your numbers go up, this is not the game for you. You're looking to have a cool story and you have a handler who will work with you on, you know, your private jet or your business contacts. You could have a really cool time. That's somewhere where you might be a good advantage over like a, uh, a cop or an operator, that kind of thing. We, we didn't really touch on the scientist, if you guys want to talk about the scientist. As in, like, how to make scientists fun and or able to contribute? Yeah, how can a scientist be a viable Delta Green option, given that it has uh, 160 of its points tied up in two science skills? Uh, excuse me, 200 if you count computer science as a science skill. This may be a scenario where, much like languages you may want to make the conscious choice to let the guy just have science 60 and allow them to apply it to multiple things. Cause it's, it would be really frustrating to make a physicist who needs to learn, needs to deal with chemistry. It's like, well, I just chose poorly. The other option I will say is that when I like the idea of when a game says, choose one, you'll leave it blank. And when you get into the scenario and you need a physics role, you come up with a quickly plausible reason of, Hey, I'm, you know, I minored in physics back at UCLA in my undergrad, so I know this. My physics is at 50, and I'm going to make this roll, whatever the case may be. Sort of like the way that uh, uh, Trail of Cthulhu handles language skills, then. You, you put points into, I, I know some languages, and then later when things come, you're like, oh, I happen to know this language. I like that idea. I would, not necessarily as a counter to that, sort of as, as an alternative to that, I would say maybe some of the onus should be on the handler, to say if a player shows up with 80% in biology and 60% in foreign language Russian, to say, hey, maybe, you know, for this one shot, maybe you want to put your science in chemistry instead and your foreign language in uh, French, because those might be more helpful and I don't want you to waste half of your skill points. And whereas in the context of a longer campaign, it may be more the case that players and the handler will have a better idea of what to expect. Like a longer campaign that starts with a scientist might also have the same conversation from the handler, which is being like, hey, you know, having some points in physics might be a way to get clues for this campaign. Part of the expectation, is, and this goes more towards scenario design, is that the handler kind of, sh well, I don't want to say should, but the handler should keep in mind what skills their players have and maybe try and play into those. I don't necessarily mean, okay, well, I've got a guy who's got 75% physics, so I got to have a physical clue for every single every single piece of information, every single scenario, just to kind of keep it in mind. Because my experience is as long as a player gets to shine once in a while, they'll be pretty happy, even if they've hyper-specialized. I think one of you guys had mentioned this earlier, that it's really just because of the nature of Night at the Opera, how it leans more towards one-shots than kind of extended plot lines. It's hard to prepare for having any one skill set. 
like you can generally trust that someone wants to play uh, a federal agent or a special operator, but you don't know who's going to specifically have a given science skill, so you can't really prepare adventures that take advantage of that. And at the same time, um, as a player, don't be afraid to, to think of and suggest ways that you can use your thinly sliced science or craft or language skills in a way that seems plausible and contributes to the scenario. And as a handler, if your player does that, don't be afraid to, to allow it. Yeah, and don't. I'm not sure if this is necessarily a mechanic. In fact, I don't think it is, but stop me if I'm wrong here. You know, if somebody has physics at 80 and you have a clue that you've designed to be chemistry 40, it is not a stretch to be like, look, you're an expert chemist, but you have a lot of friends, or you're an expert physicist. We have a lot of friends who are chemists, and you kind of have an idea about this, even though you're not an expert in it. You kind of let them default skills. The other time I've seen, I might see scientists working is when you have uh, multiple scientists. So you have a one shot where everyone is a scientist. So that way, if it's a physics puzzle, then you have a physicist. If it's a chemistry puzzle, you have a chemist. This kind of worked out well in Black Sat. Um, because everybody was kind of sciencey nerdy. Oh, where the black set where nobody can pilot an EVA suit to save their lives? Hey, everybody rolled well when they needed to. You know, everybody had a little bit of hyperspecialization, but it meant that when you needed to know about chemistry or physics or whatever, you had someone on board who had that, and you didn't feel left out. So I'm going to make a not-so-bold statement about scientists here. I'd say that scientists are inherently more useful than, say, uh, some of the other less uh less used professions in the agent's handbook they're just more useful because hypergeometry you could potentially approach hypergeometry from any of the, the three major science groups really i mean part of the idea of the mythos is that what we understand as science is a poor representation of the way the universe really works which actually is, is also kind of how science itself works uh, everything is lovecraftian so again, science, physics. Uh, how is how is this uh, unnatural ritual possible? Science, biology. Look at this unnatural excrement left behind by this monster. Well, I did that in Black Mayonnaise. It was like, well, I started off telling you guys you basically needed science biology to use it, but then I think the first time you ever used it. Yes, good good handler move there by saying uh, someone should probably have biology because like both from the part of the handler and in. In setting, uh, the case officers would want to pick field agents that had skills necessary to, to, you know, to match the intelligence they had. So again, as the handler, don't be afraid to be like, hey, if one of you guys had biology or medicine or something, that'd be really useful. Um, uh, another thing that makes uh, some of the more obscure professions uh, a little bit more useful. I've seen a couple of them that have it. The doctor has it. The scientist has it. The lawyer slash business executive has it. That's the pharmacy skill. Pharmacy skill is useful. Why is the pharmacy skill useful? Uh, you can sedate somebody. You can use it to apply drugs for interrogation. Uh, you can use it to, uh, you know, if if your character isn't adapted to violence and they don't want to just straight up murder somebody, they can drug someone and uh, make them a less than credible witness. That's good, actually. I like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's really good. Uh, that goes back to that that section in the handler's guide on blackmailing uh, people that don't want to cooperate with what the program wants them to do. You inject someone with heroin and say, "Hmm, maybe it's time for your supervisor to uh, give you a random drug screening." Or yeah. the one uh, Heron really likes. Okay, so there is 
it's almost like a speech, I think. I think it's written as actual an actual monologue. It frames an example of the program has found a really attractive candidate for recruitment and they want this person to join and they are certain this person is going to join and this person wants absolutely nothing to do with the program. So in order to ensure that person's silence, the program sends them a message basically saying, go into your kitchen and look behind your refrigerator. There should be a USB drive back there. Take a look at what's on it and think about think about what would happen if this USB drive fell into the hands of your loved one, of your employer, of any number of people who would be horrified to know that this is something you're in possession of. And then imagine how many other flash drives are hidden out there. That's good. Um, to any prospective handlers, I would, I, would, I would only say I would caution against using this tactic on your players. Uh, because, well, I mean, unless you want to run a game where they go hostile against the program and defect and join the Cowboys. But for players, that, that's a great, uh, great way to ensure the, the cooperation of an NPC. And that's probably a good use for the computer scientist profession, actually, to bring that around. Because you can be the person who actually collects all those materials off the internet without leaving your own trail. Uh, you can put them onto somebody's hard drive without leaving a trail, uh, if that doesn't get too eclipse phasey for hacking. There's no such thing as a useless character, there's just misapplication of skills. segment we're joined by will Shar, aka will zuma winner of the first annual night at the opera scenario contest tell us a little bit about your scenario a soft white dam so soft white dam is a scenario about hunt it is essentially a cult, a cult hunting scenario on the surface but there is a lot of other stuff going on i would say it is the 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 framework is a cult hunting scenario and then the execution uh, or meta narrative is a uh, dreamscape uh, small town vacation through uh, Lovecraft country in north in northern Minnesota so the Lovecraft country in North Minnesota how did you what what inspired you about that well I, the longer I live in Minnesota, I'm originally from Iowa. Um, yeah, you can enter in like, you know, sad sound effects there. Uh, but I moved up here for college and I've stayed here. Minnesota's a, an interesting place. There's a lot of weird stuff. And because Minnesotans are so polite and quiet and stoic, uh, since there's a lot of that Norwegian stoicism, they don't talk about all the weird stuff. So I keep, you know, stumbling upon these different things and... They, they, this was sort of a synthesis of, I wanted to do, originally I wanted to do a game with my, with uh, my friends um, that I do a podcast together with uh, an actual play. And I wanted to introduce, use a Minnesota based Delta Green, you know, Call of Cthulhu adventure in Minnesota to them. And uh, as sort of, since that's, we all know these places, we all have a framework and 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 a frame of reference for that kind of, uh, for the setting. 
I'm just throwing in you know, Eldritch Horrors into the middle of it. And that's that's kind of where it began. And when the scenario contest came along, I was scratching my, my head and was like, oh, well, I had this one game that I did that was fine, was great, but I can really improve it and is worth another shot looking at. So I really focused on the idea of the of the small town. I love the, the small town mystery genre. Uh, like Twin Peaks is a prime example. So I wanted to like have something that felt very Twin Peaks in a place in Minnesota. It kind of grew from there. Like love in Lovecraft stories is the whole Lovecraft country where there's sort of made up little towns where a lot of the action takes place. And so I sort of drew from that and made up my own. Uh, I didn't really actually make up the town. I took an existing ghost town in northern Minnesota and I turned that into this. I tried to turn it uh, and imply as much of it in this like living, breathing town or at least set up a framework to run a game that way and then i basically focused on all of the what are all the tool tools that a, a gm needs to kind of create that kind of game uh well what were some of your uh what were some of your favorite parts of it uh what, what was some of your favorite stuff that you wrote some of my favorite things uh well i i loved writing down some of the example dream sequences those were super fun and some of those actually were added in after I ran it the f- after I play tested it because I came up with them off the top of my head and it was sort of fun describing them putting words to them but uh i mean a lot of them the first dream uh that i re- mentioned that was a lot of fun and that was one of the first things i wrote when i ran this game way back in the summer before it you know transformed into a soft white dam i i used a lot of like imagery that occurs in a lot of different uh, um, Lovecraft stuff, but I, I, I kind of tried to make it not sound. The way I wrote it, I tried to make it not sound familiar, even though those who are in the know, those who are familiar can let go, oh, that's uh, that's the Plateau of Lang, isn't it? You know, things like that. So those were really fun. I really, really enjoyed writing the um, how the clues fit together um, and writing about, uh, like how the the cults work i had a quick question about dreams since you brought it up sometimes dreams can be boring for agents because everyone else has to sit out and uh not hear you know they get to hear it maybe hear the dream but they don't get to interact with it so did you kind of keep that in mind when you were writing this try to keep everybody engaged yeah so that's actually kind of the thing is that the central mechanic of this scenario is this plant that uh uh, the term I've just come up for it is nectar as a reference to the nectar of the gods. And when you're exposed to it, you you drink the nectar of the gods, as it were, and you can find yourself accidentally falling into their into a shared collective unconsciousness of the great old ones. And so it's they become waking dreams and everyone is sort of uh, spilling into them uh, or accidentally stepping into them. At any point, uh, the dreams in this case become a, they become da- a, a, a thing that presents a, da- a potential danger or a potential clue. And that, that's kind of how I avoided that, that problem. So I think, I think dreams should be, at least in when you're running a game, dreams, dreams should be as interactive and gameable as possible. And so I use that, that strategy, that philosophy uh, to kind of merge it with like a live investigation. The, when I ran it, 
uh, I felt when I felt things were slow, I thought, okay, now's the time to throw in something freaky that is the stuff of dreams. And I wrote out guidelines of how to use those things uh, as a GM. Yeah, I did like that aspect of it where you included several uh, great old ones and then a couple of other minor things that you could throw into it. Just sort of a, a build-your-own unnatural section. You could even use it as a part of like an ongoing uh, long-form campaign if players are already familiar with, say, uh, the Black Goat with the Thousand Young or Cthulhu or, or whatever. I really appreciated that. Just as a like a, a guideline rather than a what's actually there. That was uh, really neat. Yeah, well, and a lot of GMs always change a lot of what is in the original material of of scenarios. So I thought, like, why, why should I write this dogmatic thing that people are going to change anyways? Just embrace that, you know, it's more of a guidebook than a than a than a narrative that I'm trying to uh, get across. So was this a scenario that you had the ideas for um, before the contest or did the contest kind of pique your interest in writing the scenario? So they were, uh, it was a, uh, I sort of assembled this, a, uh, I would call a beta version of this scenario last year uh, in the spring and ran it through the summer uh, with my friends on, uh, as I mentioned on our podcast, uh if you're interested, it's going to be coming out soon. Uh, the um, the All Roads Tavern uh, actual play podcast. So uh, just type in All Roads Tavern on iTunes and you can find it. Or you can find it on uh, lithmage.com. But, uh, we'll put a link to it in the description for this episode. Good idea. I don't know when you guys are going to get this out, but uh, it, should be, it should be running. Uh, it's 14 one-hour episodes. So uh, I ran it there, and it was very different in a lot of respects. Uh, originally the weird plant was a fungus. Uh, I imagined it as fungus, the fungi from Yugoth and how it would grow inside living people and that the, these cultists farmed it. Uh, and it did the same effect, but it also had this weird time, uh, time travel effect. It, it didn't, it, it was, it was a lot of like kitchen sink stuff that I was trying to basically give every, give these new players a taste of things. Uh, and it worked, it worked all right, but it was not a, as solid and, uh, concise as I had originally wanted it to be. And, uh, you know, and it like ran way longer than I wanted it to. Like I'd hoped it had, would have been like, you know, two different stories, but it was like, well, instead of one long, you know, one very long multi-part story. And so I, I had that and I had some basic elements to it. And, uh, and, but then I saw the contest and I was like, well, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to submit anything to the contest at first. And I was like, you know, I, I, I should try something. And I basically hacked this thing apart, tore out, tore all the things that didn't work, put in the things I really liked. And the dreams really synthesize it. Um, and I think make it uh, a more cohesive piece. Um, Cause I mean, I'm combining things like a ref, you know, reference a, a, a car on a lake uh, and there's, there's like, there's two, there's two different cults, uh, active in it. And, you know, how do you get that across and, uh, how do you structure the, the clues? And that was, that was where I really struggled the first time is putting the clues in a really clear way for the players to follow them. And I didn't do that well the first time and had players that didn't really know how police work worked. And so I learned a lot from that. Uh, and so, um, 
sort of taking this thing apart, reassembling it and uh, uh, making it better. Like the, the beginning of it changed. Originally there was a body, uh, like they go to a, a, a morgue and they were going to do an autopsy. And as soon as the body's opened, uh, the plant would spread everywhere. But they realized, wait, what if there's someone who's, what if they don't have a coroner, you know, a doctor with them? That doesn't work. Then you've got this NPC that's now going to be a problem the rest of the game. Uh, and so I decided to fix that. Uh, and something that was not present in the first game was sheep. When I, uh, so a location that I used for the first game, like a real life location, we, uh, I got like on Google Maps for like the, the big cult compound farm. Uh, there was little white dots and I didn't know what they were. And a friend who had directed me to this place said, Oh, those are sheep. And I thought, Oh shit, terrifying sheep. I gotta get me, I gotta try that. And so the sheep kind of become a, a, an element running through. And at first it's just what, you know, it's more of like, why is there a sheep there? And then they actually, you know, as the game goes on, they're supposed to, they become more and more of a, a threat, uh, and trying to hunt and they start changing, looking different. They take on aspects of the different, um, great old ones, um, and can become a real threat, uh, if the players don't figure out how to, uh, deal with them, essentially putting a, uh, a timer. Uh, so if thing, like I said, if things are going slow, I threw in a sheep since there's the whole, and the sheep became perfect with the dreams. Cause I thought, oh, counting sheep, that's a thing related to falling asleep in dreams. And it worked, uh, brilliantly. I got people super scared of sheep during my playtest. Uh. Well, it's interesting because it seems like uh, people keep playing their characters who are in a soft white dam. They start shivering and they start talking about the strings. The strings. Can you see the strings? Uh, so where did that idea come from? Was that in your earlier draft of the scenario as well? Um, let's see. I think I'm trying to remember if I referenced... Ah, uh, that in the first one. I think I did, but only very, very limited at the beginning. Uh, and not like an abrupt connection. Uh, the strings were in reference to the great old one, Atlak, uh, Atlachnaka, um, you know, the spider. And I, I, you know, the, he, the, that's a great old one where there's not a lot written about. So I thought, what if this is the... It, it, but it, but like they say that uh, he lives in the Plateau of Lang. Well, the opening dream, they're put on the Plateau of Lang. So he is... I was like, well, he's sort of the, the, the intermediary. He's the, you know... the Lang is supposed to be this purgatory. And so... Uh, he's sort of the king of that purgatory, and so his his strings are everywhere, connecting various places uh, of importance and portals to other realms, um, the dreamlands, etc., uh, Plateau of Lang, to different places. And uh, so I sort of expanded on that, and it became a an element of what uh, of the the hypergeometric spells that one of the cults wields uh, against the investigators. 
one of the things that really strikes me actually is the way that the scenario kind of involves a very polite midwestern sort of war between two cults where one of them is considered uh kind of the wrong sorts they all hang out by the uh the scrapyard and a lot of them are considered addicts and then the other one is very well regarded it's uh i think it's a gay couple who everybody loves within town and they are sacrificing people to something that lives beneath the lake in town Uh, where did you get that idea for that kind of structure because the players are the main threat the players are alerted to eventually leads back to that respectable cult but they spend a lot of adventure investigating the the one that isn't regarded well yeah um i grew up in a small town and there's a lot of these weird you know little social factions that happen um and that certain people are more important to the town uh than you think there are they are uh for example in my hometown the one of the most powerful and richest families in town own a junkyard which is and they dress like hicks uh and for all standpoint practically are but they're super rich and super influential, and they're one of the main players in this in my small t- hometown. Um, and whereas there's all these uh, there's uh, other like major families that completely you know not these like that are not these people with this traditionally blue collar looking career, and they live way on the other side of town. They're lawyers and doctors, and um, they tend to sometimes get along and they tend to snipe and there's all this stuff that's going on that was going on behind the scenes when I was a kid that I wasn't aware of. Uh, and all this background stuff that, you know, my mom knew cause my mom knows everyone in town. And I, in, in conversations about, you know, my town and, and it's history that I, I've picked up these, just these weird rivalries and social coteries and conflicts within them and uh and it, it and frankly like uh you know it's very um uh it's it's a common trope of the of the southern gothic which is you know uh, i like i like things with that use elements from southern gothic and what's more southern gothic than you know it's a lot of lovecraft and uh chambers work is very you know, is very inspired by the Southern Southern Gothic fiction uh, and movements. So, and he inspired a lot of them too uh, in the 20th century. Like, so a part of it was just real life. And, but also I, I, I love, I love anything that's a small town mystery, like shows like Broadchurch. Even you guys might laugh, but uh, Murder, She Wrote, uh, whenever, you know, all, they, they, they create this colorful cast of small town characters that fit these different little factions and groups. And they're all sniping at each other secretly, especially the British ones where there's this sense of, um, calm and tranquility, but really beneath the surface, everyone hates each other or is sniping each other down when they're not present. Uh, and it's, Especially when, in its if it's a show where a outsider comes into the town and just suddenly like realizes, oh, uh, 
whose side am I on? Much like uh, is the case with, uh, if you look at Twin Peaks, you have this outsider who comes in town and he's got, he's got a mystery to solve, but he's also going to get the lay of the land. Where are these, where are these different social factions? That's kind of where I, I, I got, I got that idea. Like, uh, and partially I wanted, I wanted to do a scenario with a car on ice where the ice when the ice cracks the car goes down and i wanted that to be a sacrifice thing this is a this is a thing that happens in american gods it's actually my favorite subplot in that book and i think it's vastly superior to the rest of the book and when like i got to that part of the book like the book i just like devoured that section in like no time and struggled to you know grind through other parts uh i read it in high school and that part just really captured me, especially because um, near my hometown, uh, lake, there's this lake, Lake Okoboji. Um, it's called the Iowa Great Lakes. It's, yeah, it's a thing. Uh, they're not very big, but. I was just going to say, is that great in air quotes? Uh, I mean, they are, they think, the biggest lakes in Iowa, but that's not saying much. Uh, but also Lake Okoboji is a great name. It uh, means Lake of Spirits. We every year we have a uh, a raffle car, and on ice, basically, someone wins a prize if they guess the right day that it falls through the ice. And they did that in uh, American Gods, and I instantly connected with it. And then it was a tool for a murder, which was a a ritual sacrifice that this. Uh, like fairy or um, otherworldly being masquerading as a, as this well-liked pillar of the community. And uh, um, that really gravitated to me, but I, I, I wasn't sure if, if I could make that into its own scenario. It seemed like, I mean, if I ran that, it would be basically like two hours or less, you know, very short game. Uh, and I thought if I could put that, the element of that into this game that way i can have both and i just sort of interplayed off of their rivalry and i thought ah there we go that's perfect that's the reason the investigators are there because their infighting has made led to a mistake that has potential that potentially exposes them and because i mean everyone like you know, in crime, they you always find they always get caught because they make a mistake. So, I went with that same element. So, what did you think of some of the other scenarios that uh, were in the, in the contest entries? See, I liked a lot of them. Uh, I need to go through in my head. Look, I mean, if you didn't read them, just you can say how Motel California was your least favorite. <laughs> uh, I really liked a Mot- a Motel California. Um, I actually think that that could be. Uh, I was talking to someone about this that it's could be a really great framework for a full campaign where agents are just based out of they're running you know a group of investigations in the area, and they're basically put at this motel. They just happen to be staying at the motel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just happen to be staying at this motel, and then they're investigating these different things, and there's this weird shit that starts slowly happening over time i thought like oh that's a per like i just think that you know it would make it cool 
a cool framework. Yeah, because then you could you could have shit that's weird, and they start to think, oh, maybe all these these individual mysteries are all connected, and then eventually they realize, oh, the connection is me. The other ones that I really liked, um, I liked I liked uh, Black Mayonnaise. Uh, the problem of that game is diabolical and wonderful. Thank you. I like a ga- I like a game that challenges players to have. To think to force them to think outside the box and find another solution. Um, that one was uh, that one I really enjoyed. Let's see, uh, another one I really liked. Um, uh, I mean, I did like I did like yours, Melon. I did like. Do you want somebody to love? Uh, I love. I really love the idea the like the rabbit hole that the players could get sucked down with the tapes. And the 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 brain scanning aspect to that that like I can see players going, what is this? And they just want to understand it, and they're just going to get more and more curious. The greatest threat in writing something like that is you get a group of players that is smart enough to say, no, we're smashing it to pieces, and then all of the interactivity is sucked out of the world. So that was a that was a gamble that I took writing that, and thankfully when I set it up in the playtest scenario people didn't do that and so i made sure to adjust the framing so that people would be encouraged to actually make use of it in the playtest people enjoyed it so much they actually uh they actually defeated the main threat by mistake by their fiddling with the the brain scanner yeah as i'm actually re like re-looking over the list like i liked a lot of these uh scenarios um there's not really there's not e- really a stinker among them. There's just ones I just didn't like that like I thought were good, but like were just weren't didn't necessarily uh weren't necessarily my jam. I mean I, I think I like a lot of the imagery uh potential in statues in the mist and like the, you know, it's sort of a sort of a, a, a river t- a, a Lovecraftian river tour, uh, or a heart of darkness kind of thing. Um, red light, green light. I liked. Um, Operation Sparkplug was just a joy to read. It, it a there's a bit of like dark humor to it, and it has a really neat monster, uh, and a just a great great setting that is just filled with so many potential problems, especially the the fire you have to start. Um. Or that you can optionally start to to, to comp, you know, to cover your tracks. So here's an interesting thing with with that. I've, it's gone through some rewriting thanks to some of the playtests I ran. But originally and, and currently, the fire started kind of uh, in the prologue, you know, by a random DG friendly. And I thought about baking it a thing players could start, but then I was like, I feel like if I, if you give a player a cookie, they will throw the cookie away, smash it, get a dump truck, bury the cookie even if it's a perfectly fine cookie. Like, players will never do what you want them to do. So I don't know if giving them the option of starting the fire and role-playing that and giving it, like, a, some negatives would be good, or if they don't start the fire, there's some other things that happen. I'm still working that around in my head. Yeah, it's it's hard to somehow figure out wh- how you can influence their agency. Uh, that one, it's harder because it's, like, w- someone is going to come up, consider, like, consequences to lighting a fire, Whereas, like, it's a lot easier to 
get people to go to a location by simply using sort of suggestive language to get them to go the right way. Perhaps to tie it off then, uh, Elendil was interested in, I believe, and he, he said someone else should bring it up, he was interested in the three elements that you chose to build your scenario out of. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there was the ten different elements, yeah. Uh, intrusive dreams, a deal too good be- to be true, and I'm so smart, I'll live forever, uh, and the weather. So I wrote down four that really, like, worked. Um, the weather is obviously, it, this is in Minnesota in the winter, um, so it's got, so it's cold, and that it's it's oppressive, uh, and th- they have to explore a, a big complex that's in a forest, and there's a mine, and, you know, you could, being shot, you know, in the snow is not, you know, I mean, it's less than ideal circumstances. You're, you're going to be worried about your body temperature dropping and being more vulnerable in those situations. Yeah. As, as someone who lives in the frozen Canadian North, the, uh, the weather element of this scenario really appealed to me. There's also the, the car on the lake, like the car has a timer. Um, and if people don't kind of figure out that those other people are a problem, or the other cult doesn't rat on them, which is a total option. Um, that's where I would say the intrusive dreams can come in to reveal to them, oh, oh God, there's someone in the car, and they have to race to get to the car, and then you have this sequence where the car is falling through the cracks, and they have to save somebody, get somebody from out of the car um, uh, without drowning themselves, and then there's the potential of freezing to death. Um and, uh, you know, and I mentioned using like, so with the sheep, they see footprints in the snow. Uh, and a lot of it, a lot of it is more like window dressing and things to set the mood, which I think weather is a good element for. And uh, let's see, I'm so smart, I'll live forever. That uh, touches kind of on the, uh, the two cults. They're basically both doing something that's, well, they're, uh, I'm so smart. I'll live forever. the The cult of the, the two the cult of the two uh, two men uh, they're just sacrifice. They're killing one person a year to basically appease something that lives at the bottom of the lake uh, or beneath the lake itself, and it gives good fortune and is the reason their town is still alive and prosperous. Uh, at least that's what they believe, and their belief guides that. Um, and that's that's basically up to the GM to decide whether it's, that's true or not. Um, and then the other cult, they're you know they're they're getting buying buying people off of the human trafficking uh, network, and then they're shoving them in a an abandoned mine, uh, and putting put them in cages that they've installed, and hooking them to IVs, and then they implant them with this with this plant. And they use them basically as a as a growing station to grow these these mutant plants that help them connect to the gods. And they think if they die, they're just gonna they're just gonna dream their way to an afterlife with you know swimming with Cthulhu or uh, uh, climbing on the webs of Athlaknaka, whoever they you know whoever they they feel like they've uh, connected with. Uh, and so they're they're following that delusion and. Uh, 
there's a deal too good to be true. That's sort of the the two groups. They've made a deal, uh, but it's too good to be true. It's it's being broken, kind of. And the intrusive dreams, that kind of runs... I've sort of touched on that already. Um, and that's kind of how I figured out how those... To, to in, involve those different contest themes. So you've also written for the uh, the shotgun scenario contest. Uh, yeah, two years in a row. What do you think uh, was was more challenging, or how are they each challenging? Having to write within a word limit, or having to write within a um, theme limit? I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's and that's w- what I really love about the shotgun scenarios, and. I tend with those I tended to write them and then I would be over and then it it's a good exercise as being a self-editor. I'm like, okay, is this necessary? How can I say this in a more succinct, better way? And is this entire section that I just wrote necessary? So one was hard, you know, they the they they're both uh challenging in, in different ways. Um I, I I really like doing both. Um and I do, I think doing the shotgun scenarios made me a better at writing and made me better prepared me to write a soft white dam. Yeah, because like I'd written uh, one the year before and one uh, to my surprise uh, that was for the 2016 one uh, uh, third man factor. That was that was a fun one. And a lot of that is I leave it up to the GM. Uh, I just have to get the basics here and then i wrote some stuff on my own later that year uh that i um ran not too long ago you were in that game melon the um the win in the north yes writing that with no limit uh that uh that was sort of a good experience because i i realized like what the advantages were of the 150 uh a 1500 word count and then I wrote two scenarios for last year, uh, for 2017, and that was really interesting because I wrote um, this one called Honeycomb, which I thought was the superior. I really like thought that was the one, uh, which is kind of a. It's I basically made a haunted house with a really weird take on a Shoggoth, um, and then I wrote one that's like. I love the movie Sicario. I want to write something that uses that first scene in Sicario with the the bodies. How can I make that cool? That was a beautiful scenario, and and people loved it. I and I wrote I, I cranked that thing out in like a week. I thought it was fabulous. My one thing about it is that the suggestion that the players would be reluctant to feed the man to the the time wolves because it might fuck up the time stream. I don't know who it is you're playing with, but <laughs> I think that would encourage me to do it at this point. That's that's true. Uh, I I mean I guess I was trying to I was being generous to players far probably far too generous. Yeah, but no, that's a good point. No, that's fine. I uh, I thought it was good. I think that the first half of Sicario was the best half of that movie, and the first scene of that movie is one of the two scenes that people remember. Yeah, that was and that was inspired by an article about. These, this cup, yeah, these bees that like made a home in this family's, they made a home in the loft of this house. I think in Britain it was. And, uh, I saw it and I like shared it on, uh, one of the Delta Green Facebook pages. 
And it just stuck with him. I was like, oh, I think that's my scenario. And uh, I spent, yeah, I spent a lot of time on that one. And uh, I ran it at a convention and realized, damn, man, this one's hard to run, actually. Uh, for a lot of reasons, I mean, I probably don't have time to go into. But uh, um, I thought it would be a much more easier one. But uh, um, it definitely, I thought it would be a good, like, first timer game but no i think it's way better as it would have been way better with a a experienced group which is uh something i learned running it all right we have any uh any further questions for will zuma i guess i have a question for you guys so um was there is there a part in soft white dam uh or a bit of like elements uh in the write-up that really appealed to any of you uh, what was like and what was one of the things that appealed to you guys most well as i mentioned the uh, the use of uh inclement cold weather appealed to me being canadian i find uh the winter in particular is 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 rife for opportunities to mess with like environmental horror yeah as a minnesotan we sometimes consider ourselves um uh honorary canadians from from what i've read yeah from what i've read of the winters in minnesota that's that sounds accurate but uh, yeah, I use a similar kind of thing. In fact, in my in my scenario, uh, revolving around like bad winter weather and whiteouts and stuff like that. I really like the uh, the car on the ice because it's 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 kind of thing where if you if you don't know much, it seems like a very obvious just walk out there and fix it. If you know a little or a lot, you notice how frighteningly dangerous that sort of scenario can be. And I think you can really play up the tension, especially if some of the characters know enough about ice rescue or that type of thing where you can just get you know you can fall in and be dead before anybody knows what happened and the characters who are like ice is fine a car got out there we'll just walk out there and stop it like what are you doing so i really like that scenario and you can kind of play people against each other i think uh, one of my favorite parts of Saf- uh, soft white dam is just gaslighting your players with the dreams i i love doing that to my players <laughs> I mean, it's just like sand test at will. You know, you're like Oprah. You you get a sand test. You get a sand test. And it's just these freaky dreams just happening to them, especially involving the sheep. Yeah, you guys know that I am a fabulously lazy man. And for that reason, I tend to not do scenarios that require a lot of adjudicating what people see and the visions that they have and so on. So... That, I think, is a very high art to not write a scenario about that and then to run it and have it be uh, fun and feel very atmospheric because, in all honesty, I just usually can't be bothered. It is similar to how I think that um, Third Man Factor, I, I always felt, would work awesome as either a solo game or a duos game where you tell one player about the brain cylinder but not the other and have the one guy be the brain cylinder. Uh, yeah, actually, um, so after I'd wrote that, written that, um, and it had won, like months later, some guy on one of the Delta Green uh, Facebook pages was 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 ranting about how he ran it, and he did that exact thing. He had a pl- three players, one guy showed up late, and he just handed him a sheet or like some notes and said, I got a character for you. And just made him play the brain cylinder. 
And when he got there, he's like, all right, well, he's there. He's there with you. Fucking genius. I know. He said, oh, he's been with you the whole time. And they said, like, okay, right. Lame. Could you have come up with a better excuse for him being there? And he was playing them the whole time. I know. Right. Fucking genius. I mean, you can't plan that. You can't, like, I thought about trying to run the game that way, but you can't plan it that way. Uh, but yeah, no, I've, I've wanted to, I haven't run it that way, uh, cause I've done a solo game, uh, of it, but I want to, I kind of want to run it with where someone is playing, uh, Shackleton, the brain canister. Uh, I think my favorite thing about the soft white dam is like Elendil said, the car on the ice, just because I recognized it from American gods. And as soon as I saw it mentioned in the scenario text, I was like, oh shit. I knew exactly where the rest of the scenario was going to end up. And I like that kind of thing. I like that uh, the climax of the scenario is about a race to save someone. It's not just solving a mystery. It's not about killing the monster. It's about can you make life, can you save one person's life? Can you do the right thing? Yeah. Um, and that was sort of an important thing to me, thinking about it, because the other cult, like, the damage they've done is undoable um, to all the people they've infected. They're, they have, they're, there's, there's no other choice but to, like, mercy kill them. And, like, it's dark, you know? And I was like, there needs to be a sliver of hope and light in this, in this gloomy, gloomy, nihilistic world that I've created uh with this scenario so it was really important for me to have them be able to save one soul the uh the darkest part of uh, a soft white dam is where you describe the junkyard and you say that the junkyard is surrounded by a fence and all around the fence is stacks of pallets and you might not really like make the connection of like what the pallets symbolize there but uh it's every time they bring in a person who's a victim of human trafficking to use to grow the uh, the unnatural drugs there, it's a person. So like every one of those pallets represents a person that's that's died, and I always thought that was that was pretty dark, man. That's that's really dark, and like you you have to like make that connection. That's like Holocaust pile of shoes, uh, imagery. Yeah, like a bin full of gold rings. Well, on that uplifting note. So, shall we talk about our submissions to the Night at the Opera scenario contest? Yeah, I would love to talk about that, because I think that's, Chief, uh, you got second place, so I think that that puts you above either of us. Right, okay, I'll, I'll just talk about the, the second place winner here, it was Motel California. So my, my wife was reading The New Yorker one day, and she came across this article about this motel owner who was also a voyeur, um, had installed... Uh, viewing ports in some of the rooms of the motel that he owned. And he was watching uh, his guests as they, you know, did hotel things. They engaged in intercourse. There was a drug dealer using it to conduct business and things like that. Uh, but the, the the high point of that article is where, or I guess maybe it's a low point, he had observed a drug dealer sell drugs to some kids and it pissed him off. So he went into the room, found the drugs, flushed them down the toilet, and uh, the drug dealer came back, and the drugs were gone. 
and he didn't know how the drugs were gone. So naturally, he thought it was his female companion, and he he strangled her. and And the voyeur watched this through the viewport as this drug dealer murdered this prostitute. And then he had to struggle with the moral conundrum of, uh, do I call the police? How do I tell them I observed this? Or, you know, that that sort of thing. But um, I thought about it and I was like, hmm, how, how would I convert this to a Delta Green thing? And I was like, okay, well, who who needs to do observations? And initially I was like, maybe it's the Migo. But then I was like, nah, that's that's stupid. Then, uh, um, then it just it jumped out at me. It should be a Yithian who is doing these observations for a report for uh, the Great Library. From there, I just kind of went and back, you know, because Yithians have control over the, the, the construct of time as a thing. So uh, I made it to where he'd been doing this for a couple millennia and uh, had been keeping his writings every time. And uh, eventually, uh, then from there, it was just a matter of adding interactive elements for the players to engage in. Uh, for that, I, I looked... Uh, I looked for some inspiration from like the Dreamlands and uh, on the Fairfield Project website, I found Lost to Vegas, which was an interpretation of the Dreamlands that takes place in like a uh, dream version of, of Las Vegas. And uh, from there, I just kind of rolled with it of uh, the Yithian has control over this particular section of the Dreamlands. And, uh, and I added some more elements. There's like cartel members doing drug deals and they're addicted to getting whatever they want in Las Vegas. So they keep staying at this hotel um, so that they can go do whatever they want in the dreamlands. And uh, he has, uh, the Athean has them under his thumb. And so people start getting suspicious. He uses them as sort of like an enforcement thing to, uh, to, you know, make the agents leave or to kill the agents and not pass any blame off on himself or uh, things like that. I really like the scenario uh, for the same reason I really like Ross Payton's Bestow, because I think you can, uh, I wouldn't run around it standalone, but if I was going to try to seed something else, I would insert it into this, and this would be a great middle act or third act to whatever else I was doing. So you could take away the cartel guys and put, you know, your bad guy or your whatever you're going to have in your other scenario in there. And the Yuthian adds a very interesting thing to do. You know, you you do have the issue of do dream stuff if you don't have everyone in the same dream which you you do but not always it's boring for other players to either not hear it because you're in like a secret room or to just hear the school dream stuff and then not have it happen to them i think if you you know made it short and sweet and uh used it to seed something it could be a very very good scenario to build off of because why i like it you guys know i hate yithians i hate them despite writing an npc contest entry about one and if i had a chance to go back and change that i would so that i could say i hate yithians and people wouldn't be able to hold that over me but this scenario sounded like a lot of fun. It one second, and everyone loved it, and it's really cool. And if I ran it, I would run it, except that I would replace the Yithian with something else, and everything else about it is amazing. What would you uh, What would you put instead of a Yithian? Amigo. No. I would go to the Dreamlands, and I would say, there's creatures in the Dreamlands where if you go to sleep, and you are in the Dreamlands, and you, you meet these guys, they devour you, you wake up, and it's them waking up in your body. And so that happened to someone at this motel. And now I would keep the Las Vegas stuff, I would keep everything else, but I would just do without Yithians because I don't think that a creature that is omniscient is very interesting to play a game around. I like the idea, or at least I, I kind of got the idea from reading the scenario that this maybe this Yithian was either like damaged somehow. Yeah, that's kind of how you have to do it, is that is that he, he likes to watch humans more than is really appropriate. Because if you think about this Yithian... What the hell is he really learning from watching people get high and fucking murder each other in a motel? 
it's not that the Yithian has a scientific reason for doing this after a millennia of doing it. It's clear that he's doing it because he likes doing it, because he's some kind of sadist or because he gets some sort of enjoyment out of it. Right. I think uh, one of the things I had him write in his like observations is that uh, part of the human experience is suffering and violence. So for that reason, he wants to be like a human. He wants to forego his, you know, his immortality club membership and, and be like a human and die. That part I did like. I liked the part where he was he had learned what humanity was like by watching films and consuming media. And so he had his essentially dream version of Vegas was based on Scorsese films and The Godfather and stuff. Right, because, uh, I mean, that's just uh, what uh, the the human who he took over had that same sort of thing. You know, he used to sit in the motel office and uh, watch movies on TV and things like that. And, and he just kind of adopted that and rolled with it is the way I played that out. But yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that angle too. Just uh, and, it, and it does fit neatly with the design of the scenario in that, you know, violence is a pretty huge part in American media. And that's uh, largely what he was exposed to. I'm sorry the Ithian wasn't like a French film connoisseur or anything like that. It probably would have made the scenario go a little bit different. But uh, yeah, violence wow. was the, well, violence was the theme, and that's what he rolled with. It's good because that is also true about Delta Green. We see in the Handler's Guide, they say Delta Green is not about guns. Delta Green is not a bug hunt. But every time we play Delta Green, what ends up happening? Somebody puts a hole in somebody. Somebody wants someone dead. And so it's a cool little meta-commentary on the way that this game, and RPGs in general, but uh, Delta Green noticeably, is a game that claims to be about, you know, this cerebral horror experience and tradecraft and so on. And yet, even in the published modules, it always comes down to use gun on man. But uh, in, the, in the possible resolutions, I said, you know, maybe it's possible to reason with the Athean. It might be possible to talk him out of it, or I mean, hell, just leave him alone if he's not if he's not really hurting that much. I mean, you know, that's always a uh, that that's unacceptable for as far as like the program's mission goes. But hey, what the agents don't tell their case officer won't hurt him, I guess. Yeah, that is something that is so important to me, and I wish more players realized is that if you just lie to the case officer, then you can finish the scenario without having to go out in a massive firefight that your characters are not prepared for. All right. Uh, Melon, you want to talk about your scenario? So my scenario is a scenario called Don't You Want Somebody? And then in brackets it says to love. It is essentially two different ideas that I mashed together because neither of them were that interesting on their own. One is that there was a... It's based on an old um, page in the Fairfield Wiki that said that Majestic had made when they augmented all those guys for the recoil and um, catalyst programs, had used uh, traveler neurons to make the guys' reflexes better. And I thought, well, that you know couldn't possibly turn out badly. The traveler, if you don't know, is the creature from the very first Delta Green adventure, Puppet Chosen Shadow Plays, which is based on a creature from a novel called, or a novella called, I think, The Autopsy. I think it was by Michael Shea, but I don't remember. Anyway, the traveler is a, is a creature that is like a little bundle of nerve endings and can crawl inside your body and puppet you and so on. And so the idea is that Majestic 12, when they built their, when they had their power armor program, because everyone loves power armor, they needed a way to do a neural interface. And so they decided to take the traveler samples that they recovered from the San Carlos Indian Reservation at the end of Puppet Shows and Shadow Plays and to use those, essentially domesticate them in a lab and then stick them inside people and use those people to pilot the power armor. And so now in 2017, one of these guys who 
got this thing in his body to pilot the to pilot the suit is in a little trouble because the traveler has decided that it wants to go back to doing what travelers do best, which is to torture and kill people because because they get off on it essentially. That's the explanation that was given in the original book, and that's the one that was given in Publishers and Shadow Plays. And so that is one half of the scenario is that a Delta Green storage facility is attacked by this or, you know, an archival facility that's holding a bunch of old majestic records is attacked by this creature inside of its host because it wants to find the suit of power armor again, because what's better than committing atrocities in the body of a human, committing atrocities in the body of a human inside of an invincible suit of osmium, ceramic, whatever, made-up material. And then the other half of the scenario is that because uh, I love Eclipse Phase and I love the whole concept of resleeving, the players can visit this uh, storage facility where basically a, a cohort of majestic scientists decided that things weren't going so well, they could kind of see the writing on the wall, and so they decided to enact a little insurance policy where they all saved their brains to a set of cassette tapes and designed a means by which they could then re-record them out of people's heads. The problem, of course, being that the clone bodies that they were intending to re-sleeve into no longer exist because that whole program was torpedoed along with the rest of the thing in the Civil War, and it's all a lot of DG inside baseball that no one really cares about at this point. But the end, the, the end result is that the players have a collection of these tapes that they can record onto any body that they put in the machine, which unfortunately overwrites whoever they put it into. And so it's essentially a trap designed to both ensnare an unwary player, but also give them an interesting experience, because obviously when you overwrite somebody, you put someone else in that body. So you give the you give the new character sheet to the guy and say, okay, you're you know a blue fly agent, or you're an outlook scientist or something. And those two elements are what make up the scenario, essentially. Well, I mean, I, the, the, the two separate things are really because, OK, you've got apply gun to person check, but then you've got the the interactive side of it that, hey, now uh, you're kind of forced to role play as something new. Like it's a it's a certain like a 180 degree turn on your expectations of what was going to happen, because you as a player now have to deal with a shift in uh, motivations for what what's happening right now. And I, I I listened in on the the playtest, and I really enjoyed how that went. I'm trying I'm trying more when I write scenarios to find ways out besides just use gun on man because I think if I'm going to be so cruel to both my fellow co-writers of scenarios that are not at the opera and also to the official developers, I should at least try to make some effort to improve my own writing. Yeah, I like the idea of the brain tapes. I think it'd be interesting to see if an agent clever would be like wait a second i can back myself up that is yeah that is explicitly in the scenario text that that's the puzzle is that there's a blank tape and you can just put yourself on and then come back and you lose a lot of sand but you don't die sounds like you just wanted to bring eclipse phase into delta green um i don't remember uh i read this a while ago is an option to basically shove the traveler into this thing and pull his brain out um i mean you could the basic issue with that is that um, I don't. But what 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 did, what 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 would be the purpose for this? Because essentially, the traveler is a ball of neurons that has genetic memory of all previous generations, which is something that Jabril came up with that I really liked, and it was sort of the nucleus of this scenario. So you have then all of the traveler's memories backed up to a tape. What do you do with that? Uh, destroy it. Wipe, wipe it with a magnet. Okay, but if you're if you're doing that, then why bother putting it on the tape in the first place? I'm just wondering if you could, rather than trying to shoot it out, somehow trick it into, you know, into the machine, so to speak, and, you know, wipe it wipe it out that way. Or override it, maybe. Maybe. The problem with that is that the traveler doesn't live in the brain of its host, it lives in the intestine, so you'd have to hook the um, the electrodes up to the guy's gut. 
But uh, any other questions about the the one that I wrote? Yeah, no, I, I think yours was interesting. I think Traveler is an, an enemy that doesn't get brought up as often. I was disappointed that there were no stats for it in the Handler's Guide because it is the OG Delta Green monster. No, another part of that uh, thing that I enjoyed was that you were able to to bring out uh, one of the things that um, the, the new Handler's Guide has done is a lot of erasure of like established Delta Green lore, but you were able to play around with that to make it a more interesting scenario. Uh, I like that you kind of dusted off, you know, MJ-12 stuff, and it's still relevant, you know, in uh, 2017, 2018. Um, I really appreciate what you did there with that. Well, that makes one of you, because I know that Allendale really doesn't like it. (laughs) No, I just give you crap for it. It's, uh, It's fine. I'm just not a big lore person. It's a lot of inside baseball because there are some people in our Discord who you know have read all the tie-in novels and stuff, and then uh, like then they go they go even harder than I do. I try to make it so that you don't have to know that stuff to play the game. Like it's it's a nice nod and wink, but it's not necessary. All right, let's talk about my scenario: Operation Stop Lido. No, I'm just kidding. It's Operation Sparkplug. Uh, so, um, these, uh, benevolent, well, not really benevolent, but these creature, two-dimensional creatures called negatives, um, have been observing humanity for many years, and, uh, one of them was observing the nuclear tests at, uh, you know, Bikini Atoll, and because it was a nuclear, you know, a flash of nuclear light, it got kind of inadvertently transferred from where it was in the ship into, uh, onto the film plate, and it got basically stuck in this film vault, uh, in this old military installation called Lookout Mountain where they did all the editing. So it got stuck there. Uh, it went crazy because it was like locked in the vault. Lookout Mountain got sold, you know, moved around and became a, a private place and got sold. Um, the original scenario before I, or the original scenario playtest was a Coral Nomad scenario, which had some issues and I'll talk about those later, but I ended up rewriting it to be just a standard DG scenario, which I think did help it a little bit. But basically, uh, the program gets wind of a ship that's come and landed at Lookout Mountain. Uh, the ship has come into land, and they've uh, they dispatch a team to go check it out. And it's not, what it is is the in some renovations in the in their basement, the negative that was trapped there has been released, and it's gone kind of like crazy and mad. But it is able to send it a distress, distress call, so they sent essentially like the negative version of Delta Green, you know, Delta Green or a negative rescue team has been dispatched to come uh, pick this one up and bring it home. In the meantime, because in reality this place is owned. Uh, by Jared Leto, actor and singer extraordinaire. He, uh, it's the negatives kind of taken over him. Negatives have the ability to kind of superimpose themselves because, you know, they're two-dimensional and when they interact with three-dimensional space, it can cause problems. So they may do things like, you know, project themselves into your, onto your eye, which was an idea that Malin helped me out with. Project themselves onto your eye and, uh, you know, show you different things or project onto your body and it's just this, like searing pain because the negatives are driven mad by years of captivity. Uh, it kind of drives Jared Leto insane, whereas a normal functioning negative wouldn't necessarily um, intentionally try to harm humans. They're just trying to study us, but they may harm them accidentally, but they like project across them and whatnot. And the main mechanic of movement for them is that they can traverse on two-dimensional spaces, but then given uh, sufficient light or energy, they can kind of project from one space to another, which is kind of why, which is why I call them negatives. Whether that space is, you know, a piece of gear or a piece of metal or a wall or a human brain or, or a human eyeball or whatever, um, it's all, you know, two-dimensional space for them. You know, this is kind of one of those scenarios that Melon and I talked about before where if the agents just went and got a beer, the negatives would just rescue their buddy. Jared Leto would still be insane, but whatever, he's an actor. Um, they would all go home to their planet. So the the interaction comes in terms of the 
players arrive and kind of step on things poorly, step on the hornet's nest, the two kind of sane rescue negatives don't know how to deal with it or aren't able to communicate as well, or maybe they can. I'll have to kind of beg for the handler to determine whether they're very competent or not that competent at communicating with humans or dealing with it. Meanwhile, there's like the crazy negative that's trying to maybe get away and doesn't realize that the rescue team is there, etc. So that was the basic idea of the uh, three... I wouldn't really talk about these for you guys scenarios. Elements that I used were uh, abandoned mil- or old military installations, the weather, which I'll talk about in a second, and uh, oh, and unorthodox green boxes, which didn't really get used in my playtest scenario. Um, one of the, th- the things that I that I thought about was because this was a like controlled landing of an alien spacecraft rather than a crash. The program has realized that they need to kind of contain the situation, so they basically send a DG friendly out to set a forest fire realizing that if the team can't handle it, maybe the fire will either drive people away so there's no people to get messed with, or it'll, it will uh, uh, sorry, it'll either drive people away so that there's no witnesses, or it'll destroy whatever's here. So that creates a little element of tension. And the unorthodox green box is the ability for players to kind of call in an airdrop from a friendly uh, in California fire service to drop in uh, drop pods, essentially from a plane, which can carry some stuff. So I think that you were quite hard on yourself, but uh, I think that this scenario is very easy to make better. It would fix all the problems that both you and I had with it. I think all you have to do is, first of all, get rid of the Gerolito meat tank, because that's not necessary for this scenario to, to work. The monster that you came up with is really cool and interesting, and a crazy guy who takes a lot of bullets to kill is like half of all the enemies in Delta Green. Just say that he went back to his home planet because he realized that his house was on fire and he didn't want to be inside of it when the thing came through, and say... The negative that is trapped on the plate is still in the vault. The negatives on the ship cannot open the vault. When the human beings arrive, the negatives in the, who are, came with the ship think, cool, I can use these people to get the vault open. So they try, they go do their thing with the flashing lights and possessing people, not possessing people, but you know, getting on your skin and, and making you real uncomfortable and so on, making you lose sand, making you claw your eyes out, whatever. They're trying to get you to open the vault and free their friend, and then once they, once they got him out, they just fuck off. So that's how you take this scenario, which, like like I said before, and like you said, has a really cool idea, and fix the problems. Because you already fixed the thing with the Coral Nomad, because the problem with Coral Nomad is that um, they don't play by the same rules as regular Delta Green does, and that makes it hard to design scenarios around them. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think I want to make a Coral Nomad scenario someday, because I like the idea, but I would have to figure out... Because it's just XCOM, basically. Yeah, exactly. It, it would be more of like a dungeon crawl, which would be kind of fun. Yeah, it's like that that blue fly scenario I wrote that um, honestly didn't end up being very good, but was the same thing where you land, you, you blast some aliens, you, you you leave. Well, we got Rhino Team coming up. Hopefully that'll uh, fulfill your XCOM Delta Green crossover fantasy needs. Yeah, and I say that as someone who has never played XCOM and has no interest in strategy games. But uh, yeah, that's how I think you could very easily with with a minimal amount of effort basically just with removing a couple things make this into a great scenario yeah that would be really solid i i I also feel like it might be worth the fire works in some ways well and now that it's not really a scenario for the contest anymore if i rewrite it then i can do whatever um there's like no reason to use the unorthodox green box method unless there's some sort of what i envision is there would be some sort of uh you know you get there and realize okay we need in order to deal with these hostile presences, we need like ultraviolet cameras or flashbangs. You say, okay, well, we got to call this thing in, and then, but it's so that may still work, but maybe not. But I think that would be a good regret. So I appreciate that. 
Yeah, I think it's a, like I said, it's a fun it's a fun seed for a scenario. It just needs um one or two things that you don't even have to add stuff. You just have to take stuff out. Yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, I could leave Jared Leto in if I wanted it to be fun, and he could just like show up near the end, and be like trying to rescue his possessions. Yeah, get out, get out of my house, you fucking lunatics. No, uh, the the negatives though they that could be a really fun exercise um, as a GM trying to communicate to your players. Uh, via the limited communication method that the negatives have. And I, I played around with that because I, I figure negatives have been studying us for a long time. So at, on one hand, you know, they're two-dimensional. And so for them, three dimensions is just a totally alien concept, no pun intended. But at the same time, the ones who get sent down would essentially be highly trained. They would have studied humans for a long time and may know they could have a level of knowledge where they understand like here's how humans communicate they make their mouths move and there's they push air out like or their eyes or how they visually see things or whatever so they may be you know you sent you sound like your delta force essentially down to the hostile alien planet to rescue your guy well, what's to stop them from just using like morse code with the blinking lights or yeah i, I, I don't i don't know and i think I would leave that to the handler if their players are doing really well and the, the negatives communicate less. And if the players are really struggling, negatives communicate more. I, I did like the idea of, you know, the negatives are essentially friendlies who just are, it's like a misunderstanding. If they project on your eye, you know, you have this like horrifying pain in your eye and you're seeing these horrible things to like, like claw your eye out, but they're just trying to show you like a door opening, but you see like the abyss or something, you know what I mean? So yeah, and things get lost in translation. That's a really good point. Uh, cultural differences, but as portrayed by just your friendly neighborhood, uh, two-dimensional flat Stanley aliens. But also, again, I like them. I think I would, if we had like an NPC or a monster contest, I might kind of rework them to have more more depth. No pun intended. Yeah, exactly. It would be fun to put them into other scenarios. That's all we have for you tonight. In the description of this episode, you'll find links to the All Roads Tavern, to the Night of the Opera subreddit, and to our Discord server. From all of us, thanks for listening to episode one of The Green Box. We'll be in touch.